we're talking about separation of church and state, right? And the Constitution says that no religious test should be applied to holding public position. My question is this, then why is the president have to swear upon the Bible? Why can't there be some other way for him to pledge his, uh, his duties to the United States other than a religious symbol? You know, that's a good question. And, and the whole issue of a religious test for public office is absolutely front and center in this election cycle. Um, last fall, there was a huge outcry from some of the uh, political commentators, some of the conservatives and, and some uh, Christians, because there was a Muslim elected to the House of Representatives from, I want to say, Minnesota? Yeah, somewhere over there. I'm forgetting his name. I, we, did, we covered the story, but... Uh, um, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember, I think I put something, yeah, I think I put something in the Pacific Union Reporter about this. Um, and he wanted to swear his oath on the Quran. And so we took a look at that, you know, Christians were, oh, you've got to swear an oath on the Bible. So let me ask you, what sense does it make to ask someone who does not believe in the Bible to swear an oath on the Bible? It doesn't make any sense. Historically, the reason we swear an oath on the Bible is because that was a respected and common practice that America was inhabited by Christian people, and it meant something to swear an oath on the Bible, even if your uh, you know, religiosity had waned and backslidden and you weren't particularly churched, it still was a matter of solemnity and, and grave respect. It meant something to swear an oath on the Bible, and it served a valid secular function, if you will, and it's a matter of uh, kind of historical way we've done things. But you have to ask, well, why do we do it that way? What's the purpose? And does it make any sense to ask somebody who doesn't believe Bible to swear on the Bible. And that's why, by the way, when you go to court anymore and are sworn as a witness, uh, it's rare, if ever, that uh, they will pr uh, produce a Bible for you to swear on. And what they will ask is, do you swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Because there are many people who have uh, conscientious objections to swearing at all. And so they affirm. And, and so it's been secularized. But we have a de facto religious test for the office of presidency. And I commented on this early in the campaign in saying that Governor Mitt Romney, despite his uh, considerable qualifications, would never win the Republican nomination because the conservative wing of the Republican Party, uh, the Christian right, will not accept a Mormon. Um, and if you paid attention to his religion speech, Governor Romney, uh, really, he played both sides. He, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he said, look, folks, 
There's not supposed to be any religious test for public office. So cut me some slack here. You know, it shouldn't matter that I'm a Mormon. On the other hand, what he said was, but by the way, I believe in Jesus Christ, so why can't Mormons be part of this broad sort of Christian test for public office? Well, I'll tell you why. The reason why is because what Christians want in a conservative Republican candidate is somebody that prays to their God and who they can have confidence in that God would actually hear and answer their prayers and would obtain some semblance of guidance and direction from on high. And this is why, despite the increasing absurdity of many of the policies of this administration, the conservatives will not publicly criticize the president at all, but uh, will close ranks and insist that after all, he's a Christian and a praying man, and therefore God must be guiding him in his policy decisions. And because of this warped approach to our government and to our political leadership, um, too many Americans have lost the capacity for critical thinking. Now, I didn't give it this morning. I have to give you my uh, political disclaimer. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is not partisan. I, as a representative of the church, do not espouse publicly a Republican uh, agenda or a Democratic agenda. We espouse no party and we don't advocate for any candidates or against any candidates. And when, uh, you know, if, if the truth is going to fall where it, where it will. When we talk about abuse of government authority or the accumulation of presidential power, these are things that happen under both Republican and Democratic administrations. So I just wanted to be real clear that if we get into points that are critical of this administration, that it's not out of any sense of partisanship. Um, there, are, there are things we can talk about that we can trace back through both Republican and Democratic administrations that have uh, equally contributed to, to uh, various problems and erosion of our civil and religious freedoms. All right. Um, didn't have time for the disclaimer this morning. Glad uh, at least none of you expressed being offended at anything I said this morning, but I'm glad to, to get that on the record. All right, that was your question. No religious test for public office, etc. Next. Brother, Brother James. We are not the only religious liberty watchdog. The other people have sent me email concerning the H.R. 1955 and S.B. 1959. Do you know anything about this at all? Well, don't just uh, give me numbers. What, what's the bill It's a preventive of Homegrown Terrorism Act. And they said the language could infringe our religious freedom because the word, I do not have the document here, that if that passed, even distributing a Bible or tracts will be considered as terrorism. 
First things first. Somebody sends you something to get you stirred up about a bill, forward it to me. If it's a bill in Congress, we'll probably forward it to our representative who covers Congress, or we may just take a look at it ourselves real quick so that we can give you sound information. Um, the first thing to know is that most of your politically active groups are organized as we think of independent ministries. They're, they don't have a funding stream provided to them. They have to raise all their own money. And the way they raise their own money is, surprise, they get people stirred up so that they'll give money. Which means that they have a vested interest in finding things to stir people up about. And if they can't find something, they'll exaggerate something if there's not something legitimate and frequent. So, so this happens all the time when things are distorted. I can assure you the last part of what you said about um, making it illegal to, to distribute Bibles or religious literature is a gross distortion of anything that's in the bill, whatever the bill says. The one provision that, that I've been aware of that I'm concerned about, and I'm not sure if this is part of this package or not, because you know we don't we don't deal directly with all of the bills in Congress at the Pacific Union level. We have a primary responsibility for state legislation, and then we support James Standish, who's our NARLA uh, director. We support him in the priorities that he sets for Congress. So the bills that you see on the NARLA website, those of you who sent your emails already today, um, you know, we support those. Uh, I was in the recording studio this week, and one of the bills that we've been active on is a bill to give the Food and Drug Administration authority to regulate tobacco. Well, this is an issue Adventists have long been engaged on, issues of tobacco and, and smoking. And so I did a radio show, and we've been lobbying for this for a long time. It's a marvelous bill. Um, I also did a radio show with those who were seeking uh, to reenact legislation that deals with the problem of human trafficking. Um, what is human trafficking? It is modern-day slavery. And the estimates are that at least 20,000 people are being brought into the state of California alone every year and treated as slaves, uh, whether it's in sweatshops or in drug dealing or in prostitution. And if anybody ever gets caught and arrested, it's usually the slaves, not their masters. So this is a huge problem that we continue to deal with. And of course, historically, Adventists were involved with the Underground Railroad and in the abolition movement before the Civil War. This is an issue we have always resonated with. Now, the specific issues with regard to anti-terrorism legislation, I first raised concerns over a bill that was introduced during the Clinton years, going back to about 95 or 96 because it would mean that anyone who financially gives an offering that somehow uh, supports terrorism could be arrested for giving aid or material support to terrorism. Well, um, 
This morning's operating is the Adventist World Radio. Um, but supposing it was for Adra. Uh, the question I asked a decade or more ago was, is Adra doing any work in countries like Libya, Iran, Cuba, North Korea, um, countries where there might be Lebanon, Syria, countries where there might be terrorist groups operating. So supposing um, you make a donation to ADRA, and ADRA builds a well in a village in Libya, and there's a terrorist group operating out of that village. Have you now given material support to terrorism? Well, technically, yes. Are you likely to be arrested? No. Um, we're not that insane yet. But, then we have to get into a whole other scheme of, well, what kinds of anti-terrorist arrests have we seen in this country? Mostly, what we have seen is the necessity for the FBI and the federal authorities to um, make a show that they're succeeding in the war on terrorism. Did anybody follow the story out of Lodi, California, with the arrest of some alleged terrorists there? You're nodding your head. Um, it, there was a long article, it was in one of the magazines I subscribed to, which is probably either Harper's or The Atlantic, um, but there was a, a, a wonderful piece, and I read it in depth, because when I read the newspaper accounts, and when I talked to the pastor in Lodi, uh, well, all the pastors in Lodi have been friends of mine for years, um, it didn't pass the smell test. And sure enough, you had someone who was getting a lot of money as a paid informant for the FBI who had to come up with something to justify being on the payroll. So he fingered this kid. Well, who was this kid? He was such a loser. He was driving an ice cream truck when he actually got out of bed to do anything. He was driving a good humor truck. Uh, his dad sent him back to Afghanistan, or back to Pakistan, where his uncle had a madrasa, a school, and sent him back there to, to try to find a wife. Well, he was such a loser that even coming from America, speaking English and, and all of that, going back to Pakistan, nobody would let their daughters near him. <laughs> Finally, after months and months, he managed to, you know, he managed to scare up a wife and come back to America. But, you know, of course, the allegation was that he had gone to train at this terrorist school. Well, you know, when, when somebody actually dug into the story, it was totally ludicrous. But of course, the FBI was very happy to make a show of doing something, you know, to fight the war on terror. Uh, eventually, of course, this hapless uh, kid and his father uh, accepted being deported back to uh, Pakistan because they didn't have the resources to, uh, you know, to fight the government. Um, so, the, the current anti-terrorism issue uh, that I'm aware of has to do with exonerating, giving the telephone companies um, uh, release from liability for attacking their homes. 
and Bush administration is pushing so that nobody can sue Verizon and AT&T and all the rest because they cooperated with the federal authorities and basically let them into the switches and let the NSA listen in on whatever they want to listen in on. Well, in my view, if you, after the fact, say to the phone companies, oh, we'll let you off the hook, you know, what you did was blatantly illegal and there was no way you could have conceived that this was okay for you to do it, but we're going to let you off the hook, then what happens next time Uncle Sam comes knocking and wants to just trample on um, the Fourth Amendment and our right of privacy and go after our bank records or you know, anything else, our internet records, all of our internet searches, um, you know, privacy is a joke anymore. And uh, the notion that um, we should trust the government to look after our liberties is completely ridiculous because all we have seen is the insistence that um, it's all about national security and liberty doesn't count anymore. That's really where we're at in, in our culture. So I would say on issues of national security, anti-terrorism, you know what the best website is for bill analysis of those issues? The Antichrist website. Yeah, the ACLU. Regarding as the Antichrist by the religious right. But the ACLU was doing the best work on defending our liberties on, on those issues. Are there other places that I strongly disagree with the ACLU? You bet I do. ACLU is opposing the Workplace Religious Freedom Act, incredibly. Um, I don't need to go into why, but, uh, you know, they're not on the right side of all the issues, but, but it's in the interests of the right wing to have demons on the left. And vice versa, the left wing, the ACLU, and the right, they're in this very sick, symbiotic relationship. They feed on each other. The ACLU will send out fundraising campaign letters to attack the right, and the right will attack the ACLU, and that's how they survive. And without the other one to demonize, they have business. Now we better off, maybe. I've been struggling for a way to articulate this question, but it occurs to me that one of the huge almost insurmountable challenges that we face uh, addressing the complexities of religious liberty go back to uh, education, the university, and epistemology. Um, epistemology being how we know what, what we know. We live in a society in which technology is the product of, of certain types of epistemologies. And the idea that we can know anything for certain outside of the sciences, for example, or outside of technology, has almost become unknown, even, interestingly enough, in religious circles. Religion and interpretation of uh, documents and those sorts of things, even literature and, and the human experience, English and descriptors of those kinds, uh, psychology, these are not just soft sciences anymore, they're almost opinion pieces. They've almost been reduced to the level 
of speculation rather than knowledge. And so we have a, a sort of society that has a lot of sophistication technologically and a lot of capacity scientifically, but very little sense of, of soul and very, knowledge about, very little knowledge about how life is lived, uh, especially in community and, and so forth. So you have the breakdown of that. Then you have the breakdown of education and university built on epistemology. So now you have people who are no longer... Uh, educated, I would dare offend, quote, highly educated people, uh, even physicians, for example, and challenge the notion that they're really educated. Because when it comes down... There's history, there's humanities, there's the arts, uh, there's all of those sorts of things in which they have very little exposure and training. So truly educated people, the notion of a liberal arts education is almost gone. Adventists sometimes lead and sometimes follow, and I think, unfortunately, our universities have followed secular patterns rather than leading them. And so we no longer have uh, a sort of unified view, an encompassing view that gives people the capacity to make the analysis that they need to make. So I'm concerned, What maybe you can help, what is PARL or um, the national organization NARLA doing to interface with universities so that we can have a sense of education that will enable people to grapple with the issues which involve Theology, you've brought up theology and eschatology, you've brought up history, you've brought up political science, you've brought up a number of fields in which people are not particularly well equipped to understand things. So how do, how do you help bridge some of those challenges and what do we do in a culture that's decreasingly educated, including the product of our own universities? You know, you're so right on in your observations and questions. Um, thankfully, uh, uh, oh, it's only maybe three years ago now, a very good friend and colleague by the name of Nicholas Miller um, went to Andrews University, gave up the big money of big firm law practice to uh, complete a PhD in church history at Notre Dame and to establish at Andrews University the Andrews University International Religious Liberty Institute and to bring uh, this kind of integration of depth of history, political science, philosophy, theology, religion there into the academic environment in Andrews and then also to have an institute to promote religious freedom. So hopefully our uh, pastors coming through the seminary and, and, and other students will have an opportunity to have more exposure as the curriculum is, uh, continues to be built there at Andrews. But you know, I, yesterday, Greg, I was talking with a good friend, uh, Jacques Dutan, the editor of Shabbat Shalom magazine, professor of theology at Andrews. Um, he mentioned his sense of, of dismay that we don't teach philosophy in our Adventist schools. And I didn't realize that. My response was, but classical philosophy was all about how can we understand and explain and demonstrate the existence of God. Uh, why on earth would we forsake 
the discipline of philosophy if we want to train young people to be able to, as Ellen White said, uh, be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yes, we need to be grounded in our own theology in order to be able to approach philosophy intelligently, but to me, philosophy is an essential discipline of, of a good education. I was just going to respond. That's, uh, part of that has to do with the history related to sophistry, and part of that has to do with the sort of dance that Adventism has done with uh, fundamentalism through the years in which, in my own lifetime, the study of literature was a dubious uh, notion because it was also uh, implying that you would be reading the novel. And the novel or literature might not be, therefore, true. It might be fiction as opposed to fact. And if you were filling your mind with fictions instead of fact, uh, of what value was that to you? Because, of course, people concretized and... Uh, uh, we're very fundamentalist in their approach to this. So, just the very notion, you know. When I was an undergraduate, I was a brand new convert. I was very proud. I was in a public university. I read Ellen White uh, express, you know, uh, you know, some critical remarks about the reading of fiction. And there's no question that you know, what, but what, she, what was she saying? She was talking about people that. Um, you know, they, they wind up ruining themselves for practical usefulness um, because they treat pulp, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, devoting their minds to pulp fiction the way kids are devoting their, their brains and their fingers to video games these days. You know, it, it can be really debilitating. Um, I raise some of these concerns, I think, with a, with a misunderstanding of what she was getting at, with a fairly naive um, sort of fundamentalist approach to, to her comments, uh, I had a, a teacher, uh, a course, in called the Jewish Experience. And there was a number of, of great literature uh, as part of our course. And she made the observation that sometimes literature, fiction, um, can present truth more effectively than non-fiction. And by Jesus you know, used it. I decided to, you know, kind of just sort of suspend things and, and give it a try. And as a result, I read, you know, books by Isaac Bashev Singer and some of the other great Jewish writers. Uh, I read, you know, both fiction and nonfiction and, and honestly some of the fiction was very profound in its portrayal of the truth. So um, you know, I, I can resonate with, with the struggle and, and what you're saying, what we've experienced with anatomism, but I think there's, there's just, you know, the, the fun. We do have to resist the kind of fundamentalist um, notions. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't make us, quote, liberals. No, I think we can be faithful to Seventh-day Adventist theology um, and be engaged with our culture, be engaged and be able to relate to real people and to, to share. But if we don't know their stories, then 
How do we how do we do that? How do we witness if, if, if we're so disconnected, if we're so clueless? And too often if we are raised in isolation, if, if all we know is our own schools and um, uh, you know our own churches, then we have lost a lot in terms of our ability to, to witness if we don't get out and understand where people are and, and what their stories and their experiences are and their cultures and traditions. Um, certainly, Christian witness is not about turning people of the cultures of the world into European um, people dressing like we do and singing hymns that Europeans wrote and uh, worshiping as Europeans do. It's a place for us to experience Christ within our own culture, which is why, for example, when we get done here, and I'm going to uh, have to leave in about half an hour, I'm going over to Canoga Park, where we have begun a monthly Jewish Adventist service, and we'll be singing Jewish music, traditional Jewish music, and worshiping in a traditional Jewish liturgy, but we'll be bringing New Testament um, theology in to blend with Jewish understanding and uh, trying to create a place where Jews and Christians can find some common ground to worship together. Um, because, honestly, all of you can invite all of your Jewish friends and co-workers to come here to Santa Clarita Church, but I got news for you. Even if they came, this would be such a foreign experience to them that you know they may be very gracious and courteous, and you know they may love you dearly and, and be happy for the invitation and, and have a perfectly nice time, but it would be very unlikely that they would consider um, making this a spiritual home. Uh, but if we can create a spiritual home that is much more in keeping with their own culture and what they're familiar with, then they might take it, you know, they might find a spiritual home. Come on up tonight, if you would. And by the way, please do invite your Jewish friends and come join us sometime. And next month we're going to do Passover Seder at Snow's Apartment Passover, which is the 19th. First, I would like to say thank you very much for the work that you do in religious liberty. I really appreciate it. Also, <laughs> thank you. Um, my husband is Jewish, and he believes... <laughs> He'll, he'll go to church with me uh, occasionally, but he believes that once a Jewish person accepts Jesus, he's no longer Jewish. What are your thoughts on that? Well, okay. Um, I just had that argument with my mom all the time. How can you be Jewish? And a Christian? Yeah, yeah, Jewish. Like You're a Christian. Yeah. Well, my favorite Jewish lawyer here in uh, LA is a Buddhist. He's a German, too. My husband. Uh, so, and be Jewish and be a Buddhist. Well, in Israel, if you want to make Aliyah and uh, obtain and, and go up to Israel, become a citizen of Israel, you can put down that you're Buddhist, atheist, and do anything but Christian, and you'll be accepted as a citizen if you can demonstrate that you know, you're 
line from your mother's side that you're Jewish. As far as I'm concerned, it's very simple. Was Jesus a Christian? No. He was Jewish. So, if I believe in Jesus, who was Jewish, and the Jewish Messiah, why does that make me less Jewish than before? To me, believing in Jesus is a very Jewish thing to do. And one of the things that has been exciting to me, I was not raised with a Jewish religious education. So, what I'm learning, I'm learning fresh as an Adventist. Um, it's been very exciting to me as I'm learning more about Jewish theology and Jewish uh, tradition and practice to get a much clearer insight into the Jewishness of the New Testament. Let me give you one example of something that was just like wonderful light going on. Um, the book of Matthew, the theologians tell us, was written by a Jew to the Jewish community to essentially present Jesus as the Messiah to the Jewish community. That was his purpose. But the Gospel of Matthew is the one that recounts the story of these three Zoroastrians or Persian pagan wise men following a star, astrologers perhaps, following a star and testifying that they found the Messiah. Now, I don't know if you ever stop to wonder, why would Jews be impressed that Persian astrologers thought that Jesus was the Messiah? Why on earth would Matthew be the one to include? Luke, I can understand. Luke was a Gentile. For Luke to tell the story would make sense. But Matthew? What does this have to do with the Jews? That, you know, you wouldn't think that they would be impressed that the Persians thought that Jesus was the Messiah. You with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. The rabbis tell a story. There's a tradition that almost certainly goes back long before the time of Jesus. The tradition, and this will be published eventually when my friend Sasha finishes uh, writing the book that I'm going to edit and eventually get, we'll get it out. The rabbis tell about the birth of Abraham. That the wise men went to Nimrod, the ruler in Babylon, and urged Nimrod to both bribe Abraham's father Terah and to kill the baby. You see, begin to see the parallel now? Because this baby that had been born would be, through his uh, line, great nation and you know, the line of of the Messiah and, and uh, those who God would favor over the Babylonians. Over Nimrod. And so Nimrod was urged by the wise men to kill the baby. Well, it's not, you know, there's a twist on the story. Obviously, in the story of Jesus, the wise men um, were not against the baby, but for the baby. 
But now you can see that God was setting the stage with the tradition, with the Jewish tradition and the teaching of the rabbis about Nimrod, setting the stage for what would happen at the birth of Jesus. And that's why when Matthew was telling this story, the rabbis would immediately see the parallel between Abraham and Jesus. And Abraham, of course, is in fight of Christ because he is, um, you know, the, the kind of the progenitor of the people of God. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. I thought that was so cool when I read that. Sasha said to get there's so much in Jewish tradition and understanding that, in, that would inform and give us a much better grasp. The New Testament is a Jewish book. It was, Luke was the only non-Jew to write in the entire book. Everybody else was Jewish. It's a Jewish book. And, the, and, and too often, I mean, we've had a great experience. I've been in a Sabbath school class when I'm not out preaching. Um, every other week or so, we've been studying the book of Romans. And um, we go so slowly that uh, I, I really haven't missed any chapters, although I've missed a few you know, passages. Uh, the book of Romans is marvelous when you have a better grasp of what Paul was dealing with. What he was dealing with was a Jewish community that was struggling with how to incorporate Gentiles. They were accustomed to the covenants and all of the laws and all the things they had to do and all of a sudden now Gentiles are believing in Jesus and are are receiving the Holy Spirit and they're on fire for the Lord and the Jews are struggling with, well, you know, but what do these Gentiles have to do if they're going to be part of our body? Because the church at that time was still overwhelmingly Jewish. And the question at that time was how Jewish do the Gentiles have to be in order to be part of the church? Today, we've turned it upside down. Well, you Jews, you have to stop being Jews in order to be a Christian. This comes back here. You know, I think the way we got there was the church said to the Jews, you have to stop being Jewish in order to be a Christian. And so the Jews said, well, you're either Jewish or you're Christian. And if you think about what happened in, in Spain in 1492, the Jews were told to convert or they were kicked out along with the Moors. You knew that, didn't you? So you had all these forced conversions and Judaism practiced secretly. So, I, you know, I really kind of blame the, the church. But you guys have to... Um, you guys are... When I go home, this <laughs> See, what we're trying to do, honestly, is, is make our congregation a place for a couple just like you and your husband, where an Adventist and a Jew can find um, that there's something for Paul. That... The, the worship style is Jewish. That we're not putting pressure on somebody to believe our way. That we're bringing in both Jewish and Christian ideas, but we're doing it in a way that's respectful, so that both Jews and Christians can find some spiritual nurture 
and can grow spiritually and, and have a worship experience uh, without feeling that the congregation is pressuring them to change in any way. So how do we do, you know, if we go to synagogue, are we being asked to convert? Usually not. They'll accept us just the way we are. But if they come here, there's this implied idea, well, if you don't convert, you're, you know, you're not really, you're, you're kind of, you know, if you really want to be part of us, you got to convert. Well, I think we need to do the loving and let the Holy Spirit do the converting. And I think the more that we accept people and make it okay for them not to believe, the more likely that they are to believe. Does that make any sense? That may seem backwards. But the pressure is only going to push them away. Alan, I, I see faces here that I don't recognize. So there are people here who may have come by invitation. They may have seen this in the recorder or somewhere else. They may have received a letter from James or from me uh, advertising you as the uh, editor of Religious Liberty, uh, one of the contributors of Religious Liberty magazine and you know, involved in all of this. What would you say to those in the audience who may be joining us from places other than Seventh-day Adventist churches uh, how do you want to partner? How do you see religious liberty in partnership, our organizations in partnership with the broader community? I appreciate that question, Greg. One of the great privileges I've had is to uh, provide leadership within the interfaith community on the subject of religious liberty. Um, the interfaith work is very different from what we think of as the ecumenical movement. In the ecumenical movement, People of different faiths come together to try to find common theological ground, to essentially try to minimize the points of disagreement and difference, and emphasize points of agreement. And there are many who are suspicious of that because they think that it's, it's really dishonest because there are very significant points of difference. Well, in the interfaith work for religious freedom, uh, we exist precisely because we take those points of disagreement very seriously. And we um, express mutual respect for the rights of different groups to believe and practice according to their own faith traditions that are significantly different from ours, even if we vigorously disagree. And we work aggressively to defend the rights of conscience, whether it's our belief or someone else's. And so uh, the religious liberty ministry is something that people of any faith or no faith can embrace because it, it, and I say no faith because you know I've spoken to I spoke to a, a free thinker group over in Camarillo a couple of times and I assured them that the separation of church and state protects your right not to believe just as much much as it protects my right to believe. Uh, the rights of conscience are not only the rights to have a belief, but to say I'm not yet convinced or I'm convinced that there is no belief. Whatever, whatever you're convinced of, the government is not here to tell us what to think or what to believe. That's supposed to be a matter of 
our own personal freedom, our own personal uh, responsibility. So, uh, as an example, several years ago, the Catholic Church was uh, coerced by legislation um, to provide uh, in their health care benefits to their employees to provide benefits for contraception. Well, if you know anything about it, and for the, the whole range of services for women's health issues. If you know anything about the Catholic Church, they don't believe in contraception. And it violated their religious freedom to force them to provide it. What those of us in the religious freedom community said, and a colleague of mine uh, published a letter in, in one of the papers to this effect, is, you know, freedom has a price. And in this case, the price of providing these, of protecting the church's freedom, is simply this. If the state feels it's important for these female employees of the church to have these benefits, they have an insurance program of their own, and the women can be enrolled in the state's program at relatively modest cost to the state, and the taxpayers can bear the cost of protecting religious freedom, which was a perfectly sensible solution, which of course the legislature did not adopt, and which uh, the courts ultimately decided to infringe, uh, to uphold the infringement on the church's religious freedom. Uh, in Boston, up until recently, the Catholic Church provided about 75% of all adoption services in the city of Boston. I say until recently, until the city of Boston got political correctness and decided that um, uh, if they were unwilling to um, uh, provide services to same-sex couples who wanted to adopt, then they would lose their right to have adoption agencies. And the, uh, the Catholic Church decided that uh, they would rather um, pay the price of closing the adoption agencies than compromise on their belief. And I commend them for that. I mean, it, the, it, it's an enormous human cost because adoption services are so critically important at both the micro and the macro level. In the life of a child, the difference between foster care and adoption is huge. And in the life of a community, having those adoption services is an enormous thing. Um, so far, the city of Boston has not recanted its, uh, its stupidity. You know, um, we've got to find a way to be respectful mutually of our different rights. If the city determines that it wants to enable gay couples to adopt, then it can provide those services. It doesn't have to do so at the expense of the church's um, uh, convictions that it cannot in good conscience provide those services to gay couples. It's not a zero-sum game. It's, it should not be, you know, winners and losers that, um, you know, government gets its way at the expense of the church, or the gays prevail at the expense of the church, or, as in the marriage initiative that, that Pastor...
Greg here was asked to sign up and petition circulate that the church should win at the expense of the gays. And the initiative was going to roll back all the uh, rights of domestic partnership and, and what have you, which is, um, um, I think, long had an, an excessive uh, attack on, on the gay community. But, um, I don't know if I've answered your question around that way. I think that the principles of respect, that, that God gives us freedom to believe and worship, that we respect one another's right to differ, is critical to have a society where we can live together in peace as members of the same society. We're not killing each other because we believe differently. Uh, we can be here as Catholics, as Protestants, as Jews, as Buddhists, as Muslims, as, as whoever, and, and find a way to live together in peace. To me, this is one of the critical issues facing the world today. We have uh, Muslims in the East and Christians in the West in this global war on terror. It is, there are very strong religious elements in this war. Uh, we have to learn how to live and live together in peace, or we will quite literally destroy this planet. Um, we have the means to do it. We have the insanity to do it. And, you know, your prayer was about holding back the, the winds of strife. It, uh, it is a miracle. When my brother asks me, Alan, how come we haven't seen any more terrorist attacks like on the, uh, you know, World Trade Towers? I tell him, you know, the angels have put a stop to it. Uh, if it weren't for the angels holding back the winds, surely we would have seen something similar uh, before now. Um, so to, uh, to bring it back, we have a message that we have got to faithfully give to warn the world about for, uh, church and state uniting and trampling on the rights of conscience. Um, Christ has to deal with conscience. Christ is the one who has to bring conviction, not the state. Amen. I'm going to take... Uh we really should wrap up about now, but Alan said he could be here till as late as four. If there's maybe one more question, we'll take that. If uh, not, I'm going to have you make a parting shot, and we're going to pray. Shot needs to be that uh, if you haven't sent your letter, we need to go and get our letters off. All right, let's take a few minutes, and we can do that back there too. Birker is set up. Perfect. With uh, a computer back there, you can just walk right back there and enter your email and get a letter off to the state senators and to the state representative, House Representative. U.S. senators, Buck yep. Feinstein, and Boxer, and if you're in this area, Buck McKeon's your Correct. representative. Um, was it you who told me that you got a letter that, uh, that he said he's not going to support the bill? Well, if he gets enough letters from, from everybody, maybe he'll change his mind. Um, it's been known to happen before. So that's available back there, and an email will automatically go out as you uh, put your information in that, too. Thank you, James, for helping to organize this. James, you want to wave at everybody? James has done a lot of work in getting this together. We thank him. Yeah. Big hand for Alan, please. We've been blessed. Uh, any last question? No, I just want to thank you uh, for bringing all this to life. I mean, it's something I know I studied and read about and was taught. And just to hear you speak and bring it alive 
It's very encouraging. That's scary, but very encouraging. And this is the faith in me. All right. I appreciate your encouragement. You know, preaching, uh, there's, uh, where is it, Corinthians, where Paul describes the foolishness of preaching. It preached, the Jews seek wisdom, and the, or the Greeks seek wisdom, and the Jews seek a sign, but it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And I tell you, you know, you, getting up to preach is an act of, of pure, unadulterated faith. As you put those words out and you just wonder, Lord, are you doing any good? Are you making a difference? Are you just That's right. And you can't pull one of them back either. Once they're out there, they're out there. I have to tell you, there are times, I, I remember this one particular church, I, I won't embarrass it by naming it, I, I left that Sabbath feeling like I was the dancing elephants of the circus. I was just the traveling religious entertainment. You know, it really didn't feel right. Felt like my words were just bouncing off the walls. But uh, you know, when I, it, it means a lot when I do get encouragement that people, you know, are thinking about what's been said and that it means something. It it, it means a lot to me because I, I, you know, that you know, I put my heart and soul into this, and and uh, you know. Well, as I was sharing with you at lunch, one of the I did a series many years ago as an intern, in fact about what what attracted me to Adventism as an adult, what were some of the things that I thought were really terrific about the church. And one of my uh, nights was spent on religious liberty, which isn't necessarily a doctrinal issue, but I, I have, through the years, had a great deal of uh, interest and respect for what's done. And as a re- religious liberty department doesn't always agree with, the, the, say, the ACLU on every issue and so forth and so on, through the years I've found myself not always agreeing with our own religious liberty leaders in every issue, and that may be your story as well, but I want to encourage you to continue with the dialogue, to keep your minds and hearts open, to keep your eyes open, and to, to become active. Uh, I was encouraged at the National Pastors Convention at some of the new directions that spiritual leaders are taking, not toward uh, civic power and political power, but toward the power of the gospel as we open our hearts and our hands and become the hands of Jesus to the world. Let's Greg, that's why, you know, in the book that we did, the subtitle is The Battle for Religious Liberty in the Authentic Gospel. And I would urge, um, if you have an interest in the topic, by all means, uh, get the book. You can get it from our website, churchstate.org, for a donation, or go to ABC or what have you. Well, buy it because it supports religious liberty, but when I've read it, I'll have it out eventually in our library for you to borrow and read as well. So we'll make that available. It, it's a compilation of the best minds, most of the best minds in the church today on, on some of the different religious liberty issues. And, and I'm hoping that it really will help to, um, to educate our members about kind of the, the, the real core foundations of, of religious freedom. Well, thanks for being here. Let's stand for prayer. James, you have one quick comment. I send 137 of the recipient of Liberty Magazine. I was very discouraged because I do not see one. But I do encourage because one has show up. Because that is one of Becky's recommended send. So next time, I want to encourage people to send Liberty Magazine to your neighborhood. 
because Becky sent, asked me to send to, to his clients. So Becky knows this person. So if we, each of us, send magazine to our neighbor, they can relate to you, and then they can relate to us. And I also have Brother Melvith from Azusa Church Religious Liberty. I have Anna from Van Nuys Religious Liberty, and I have my friend from Van Nuys to join us. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Let's uh, bow our heads. Gracious God, you have invited us so tenderly uh, to a place in which we uh, are, are still and always free to choose. It's a place of right relationships where we acknowledge you as creator and as sovereign Lord, and where in recognition of that, we place ourselves in the service of those you love, not demanding uh, from positions of power, but encouraging from positions of humility and service and trust. You've given us this gospel of peace, and we thank you, and we ask that we might be your ambassadors now, in the week to come, and in the years that ensue. May we make a difference in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good afternoon.